The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome back, everyone. I feel, I don't know, maybe especially tonight, so grateful to be able to be part of this study together. It just feels, it always has, this, these teachings on karma have always felt so powerful. And, and the thing is, I'm, I'm hoping you recognize there are big shadows around these teachings on karma in the sense of it's easy to misunderstand and to use some of these teachings to beat ourselves up or to judge other people. I mean, it, it really came online. I, I think this may be developmental, so some of you might recognize this in your own lives. But I think it was seventh grade, maybe sixth, seventh grade. And, um, yeah, I just started to have this moral conscience, you know, and hearing what the other boys were doing, you know, and like, I'm not going to do that. And it was like this kind of raw feeling of fear, uh, concern, like, oh, don't go down that road. You know, don't be like that. You see, from that, whatever you are, 13-year-old mind, 14-year-old mind, it's like some of it is wisdom and some of it is hate, self-hate, you know, or judgment or... But we can't avoid this part of being a human being. Right? It has to, we need to distill like that voice of conscience or moral conscience. It has, it needs a sort of a seat at the table in our lives. And it, it needs to be healed, it needs to be reformed maybe. But it's not like we can be a human being without a sort of, a healthy, that pattern, psychological, whatever, pattern, being strong and healthy in the heart and mind. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight and next week. And these teachings on wholesome regret and wholesome concern, wholesome fear, wholesome shame. I mean, just to be use more provocative terms. Like there's a place... The feeling, you know, the feelings of conscience. There's a place, like, what do we do with that? How do we use that? Because it's definitely part of what it is to be a human being. We feel that stuff. Interesting and terrible thing happened here at the center. Um, Laura remembers uh, last Sunday, I think it was, uh, somebody was here at the program and was just in a really difficult place uh, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, and ended up talking with me at the very end. Everyone was gone except Laura still in the building. And uh, yeah, and, and just the sort of people sometimes appropriately come to a place like Common Ground when nothing is working in their life and they're really at the end of the rope. And as it turns out, um, evidently after leaving here, went over to the Hexagon Bar and fell or there or nearby and died. Hit their head, I guess. I don't know the details entirely. If you remember the person, probably, yeah. And so just that, like for me, the experience of having 
been in conversation with her and um, this person reaching out and feeling the limitations of what we can do or what I could do in that moment. And uh, I don't feel, I don't feel burdened, but you see that heightened sense of responsibility. And like we don't want that. I mean, a more simple example of that would be, you know, you're walking at dusk through the woods, and then as the light gets a little, you know, further up, you realize there have been all these little newts or other creatures on the paths. But because it was dark, you were totally oblivious. You were just sort of with your vibram soles crunching along. And as soon as you realize what's been going on, right? what's that feeling in the heart? Oh my God. You know, I didn't realize there were that many earthworms sitting on the path. How many did I step on? Just because I wasn't that sensitive, maybe as sensitive as I might have been now in hindsight. Now I could, see, this is that shadow. I this perfect opportunity to hate myself for being an insensitive human being or to compare myself to the Buddha, you know, or whatever that we might do. But is that helpful? You know, what kind of seed are we planting if we're judging ourselves, hating ourselves? as opposed to like what we can do with that energy of remorse and that energy of concern, right, is we feed it right back into the one thing we can do, which is resolving to not forget, to not, to, to not forget to be present, to not forget to be sensitive, to not forget to move through the world, through our lives, with that Humility, because humility is very much related to being mindful. If I think I know, well, I'm not mindful, because I'm holding to my view, whatever that might be, or my fixed idea. So it's interesting to, like, and this is what I've been recommending that we memorize this particular phrase from the tradition and use, I am, in, I am the owner of my karma, or you could say I am responsible for my intentional actions, thoughts, intentional words spoken, intentional deeds done with my body. I am responsible, I am the owner, I am the heir, I'm somehow connected to my actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. I am born of my karma. This moment that's coming to be is born out of my intentional actions. That doesn't mean that if, you know, that terrible tsunami that hit in Indonesia a few days ago, doesn't mean my actions caused that, it just means that the mind that's relating to the experiences that are coming, that mind has been set in motion, has been shaped by the previous minds. Right? So this mind, the way this mind is related, the attitude, the qualities of this mind has been set in motion by all the minds that preceded that mind, that conditioned that mind. That's how we talk about the mind. I mean, it's... These are abstractions, but it's useful abstractions. Like one mind 
conditions the next, like a river, but it, it has this one, so there's a kind of legacy, you know, that gets passed down from one mind moment or moment of mind to the next. And then we have this moment, which is the expression of the legacy of all the previous mind moments, all the previous impressions or, you know, ways of being, ways of relating, then shows up as this mind and this moment with its tendencies to relate in this way or that way, to be in this way or that way. And this very dynamic, this is why it's not just a deterministic thing, it's like, because we're hearing these teachings, we're reflecting, we're not being negligent, we're going, wow, oh, oh my goodness. I want to be careful here. I want to be full of care, self-compassion. Right? I want to be full of care. I want to be really discerning. And even if I make a mistake, I'm not going to waste my time hating myself. I'm going to learn from it. How did that come to be? What did that set in motion? What can I do now to modify? I can't do, like if I dug a hole for myself by acting out, and now there's so many things in my life that aren't working well because I acted out, ruined, harmed some relationships of mine. So the, the relevant question is always how to relate to the mess in a way that doesn't contribute to the mess, in a way that maybe perhaps can heal or make amends or make something beautiful out of what is a mess, what is really painful. So in the tradition, you, many of you know, but we'll be studying these particular teachings on Hiri Otapa, or Otapa, depending on how people pronounce it. And it generally gets translated as wholesome regret. Sometimes they use the word shame, translators, and wholesome concern. And you hear people talk about these slightly differently. The wholesome regret is sometimes like uh, that internal sense of violating my own sense of my own integrity, my own sense of self-worth. Oh, that's not the kind of person I want to be. And wholesome concern is somehow not wanting other people to see me that way or external consequences. One is sort of internal consequence and uh, the otapa is the external or another way that I, it gets translated as the hiri part, the wholesome regret, is like how I relate to the past. Oh yeah, that wasn't very skillful. That kind of wound from having done something less than skillful in the past is turned into this monument. Oh yeah, that that's like good data to know that that wasn't a skillful thing that I did. And it could even be observing another person doing something unskillful. Oh yeah, what Jim said there, you know, just like really sensing the unwholesome. 
and it and it, it's impactful. You know, when we see somebody acting out, and we sense how unskillful it is, like what goes around comes around, or like this is not going to end well for them, right? When we sense that, it's impactful, just like it is impactful when we sense our own unskillful actions, that regret. And we make a monument like, yeah, that's good to know. It's good to know that that was unskillful. And then the the otapa, the otapa, is going like when we're in the moment, then that shows up as, okay, so then let's not repeat that here. Right? Because of that monument of pain from the past, that regret, we have this concern. So they're ta- it's talked about in different ways, but it's really that conscience. It's like how the past can positively live in the moment, in the present moment, inform the present moment. Because that's what we want. We don't want to be living and acting here and now without being informed by the past. But it's kind of a blunt tool or instrument of the mind, or blunt psychological process. We need to use it appropriately. We need to know how to use this. And the Buddha calls this these two forces of the mind of regret and concern the two guardians of the world. And... Uh, talks about how chaos would break out. I mean, it's kind of talked about in more patriarchal terms. I'll, I'll just read the traditional thing, but I guess, what did we say now? Trigger warning. But, but just interpret it as like vulnerable people would, uh, could be harmed. This is from the suttas. Guardians of the world. Practitioners, these two bright qualities guard the world. Which two? Conscience and concern. So conscience is that wholesome regret. Concern is that wholesome fear, wholesome concern. For the results of unskillful actions. If these two bright qualities did not guard the world, there would be no recognition of mother here, no recognition of mother's sister, uncle's wife, teacher's wife, wife of those who deserve respect. The world would be immersed in promiscuity like rams with goats, roosters with pigs, dogs with jackals. But because these two bright qualities guard the world, there is recognition of mother, mother, sister, uncle's wife, teacher's wife, wives of those who deserve respect. Right. So it's. I think the Buddha is really pointing to a world where brute force wins out, right? That without this concern and regret, what's to keep it from being? You know, those with power take what they want, get what they want, regardless. I mean, that we're not that far away. I mean, maybe we sense that more recently than we'd like to be. But we're not that far away from that kind of chaos, And, um, you know, part of what's very empowering is when 
we do have the possibility of taking advantage. There's that internal sense, right? We've internalized it. So we're not behaving because we'll get thrown in jail or we'll get caught. We're behaving because of this internal compass from having observed how it works. Because it doesn't even matter like if we could take advantage but nobody would know. Like take something that's not ours or cause some harm but get some benefit that nobody would ever find out. But the thing is, we know. Right, the impression is here. And that's that really distinguishes morality from the Buddhist point of view, how the Buddha talks about morality. It's really this um, internal process. It isn't there isn't a Santa Claus or a divine being or even some external um, natural sort of record keeper taking keeping score or something like that. It's that the heart, this sensitive mind, heart, whatever you want to call this thing here, it knows. So that's what we're learning to pay attention to. And that's what's so interesting. Like Even if we are going to do something that we kind of sense is not very skillful, I mean, not terribly unskillful, but just you know, probably shouldn't be doing it. It's so much better to get interested in that because a lot of times we think, well, I, I shouldn't really be paying attention if I'm going to do something unskillful. It's almost like we clock out as a moral being, and it's like, okay, I'm going to act out for a while. I mean, this seems to be up, too, in terms of um, some of the drinking culture that's been in the news with the Kavanaugh trial, and uh, you know, people who are working really hard and being good people, and then go get drunk, and then who knows what sort of tendencies, habits, then start expressing themselves when the alcohol or drugs have loosened the screws. And, you know, people can, they're just, they lose that balance and that discernment when, when we're in that way. I mean, we probably, most of us have had our own, at least little doses, if not big doses, of acting out because of uh, drugs and alcohol or other kinds of intoxicants that have diminished that moral clarity. And, and I know, and it's, you know, maybe we can talk too, and I'll leave some time for discussion. You know, even a term, a phrase like moral clarity can seem so heavy, Old Testament-like. But like, uh, like the Buddha is saying, and I'll send a link to one of the articles that has a little bit of this from Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's it's good, but it has a little bit of the Old Testament quality to it. You know, good, bad, something like that. But it's too simple to just dismiss that. It's, what's really useful is to take it in, ground it in our own experience, and see what of that, those attitudes, those perspectives are useful in our lives. It can be really turned into a protecting force for ourselves and for others. This is a, a more <laughs> relaxed version. I was trying to find where I found this quote, but I can't, I can't track it down where I heard it or read it. When you start getting sensitive enough 
to notice the ripples you make as you trudge through life, you start to walk a little softer. When you start getting sensitive enough to notice the ripples you make as you trudge through life, you start to walk a little softer. I mean, this is true in terms of racism and other kinds of conditioning we have around difference, sexism, patriarchy. It's true around um, the environment. Like when, when we hear what happens with our habits of consuming, you know, then it's like, it's hard for me. I've been re-catching articles in the last year or two about how hard it is to recycle plastics or certain and plastic bags and, and some other things, you know, and now China's not taking any more of some of these recycled items and they're just throwing them into the landfill. And then now it's like impactful. So whenever I go, it's like, do I really need to put the broccoli in a bag? You know, and it's, that's moral sensitivity, just in a very ordinary sense. Or when you watch a video about um, industrial agriculture and how animals are treated, you know, do I really actually need that? Or can I be healthy enough with less of that or none of that? That's, you know, that's called moral sensitivity. And, you know, we could think that, oh, that's a heavy, that's heavy to take. It is initially heavy, but that's why we want to pay attention. Is it liberating? Sensitivity is a heavy, or let me see how to say this. Sensitivity is hard to deal with. But being insensitive is even harder. <laughs> and you can just check this out in real time in your life. You know, live a week practicing being completely insensitive (laughs) and see how it goes. And then really resolve to be sensitive, more sensitive. And you, you notice that our words are impactful for me, let alone for the people I'm speaking to, right? Our actions are impactful. Even our thoughts are impactful. I was just thinking this the other night. It just occurred to me. I was when my partner is sick. She was in the other room, kind of keeping my distance, hoping I'm kind of just on the edge myself. And then, uh, but I, I was just noticing my mind, you know, and how it was spinning. And it, and it was like, yeah, but I'm not saying anything, right? But just that sense that, like. In the energetic soup, for sure my thoughts are impactful for my own heart and probably beyond that. Like, and that's just such a, it's not even whether that's true, it's really is that skillful to believe it's true. Right? It is skillful, I think, to believe that our thoughts matter. Because when I think, the other s- side of that, like, oh, it's just my thoughts, you know, that's at least the one place I get to act out, right? <laughs> but the, the question is, okay, is that skillful? What happens when I, the mind has that attitude that I can do whatever I want in my mind? I can act, you know, have revenge fantasies or whatever. Like, 
who do I become and do I want to be that person? What's the quality of the mind? Do I want to be living with that mind? Here's uh, that Hiri, that wholesome regret. Here's a nice definition. Hiri is that inner conscience that restrains us from jeopardizing our own self-respect. I like that. And I, I really like these teachings on this sort of first level teachings on karma because it really involves, it really works on the level of our ordinary frame of self. You know, it's like, there is a me, and I want to take care of it. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. So it's not the sort of more refined stuff we often think about and talk about in Buddhism, about things being empty, it's just nature. There isn't a self anyway to feel guilty, so what are you all worked up about? You might as well do what you want, because it's empty, it's just nature anyway. And that's, did I mention, maybe I mentioned this quote I often do at the beginning of the Course in Karma from Padmasa Sambhava, who was this famous teacher from North India who brought the teachings into Tibet. And he's, you know, this is way back, um, I don't know if it's the 13th century or 12th century, but anyway, way back and said something like, although my understanding, my view, is as vast as the sky, empty, all nature, my attention to karma, to cause and effect, to skillful and unskillful, my attention to what's skillful and unskillful is as fine as a grain of barley flour. It's pretty fine. right? So they don't, contradict, they don't negate each other, they actually really work together. Because that moral sensitivity with a self-view is a heavy trip. Like to be hanging out with your friends at a party, you know, where, who knows what's going on at that party, you know, like the parties you go to, or maybe you used to go to, (laughs) before you became a dry and uninteresting Buddhist. Um, you know, how to be in that world if we're just sensitive to skillfulness and unskillfulness, we're seeing it, we're sensing it everywhere in ourselves and in everybody else. Oh, Nate, I don't think you should be thinking that right now. You know, or, you know it's like, oh, don't do that. Or, you know, whether everyone can be judged and sort of interpreted along that, you know, moral equation of are you being skillful? Are you being unskillful? How skillful are you being? How unskillful are you being? What are you setting in motion? And you see this. This is the shadow I mentioned in Buddhist tradition because there's a lot of these teachings on karma that, you know, you do this, you get that. In your next life, you'll be ugly. Or in your next life, you'll be beautiful. Or in you know, all this sort of stuff about the sort of linear, this, you know, just uh, just kind of spelling out this sort of moral equation. 
because that sensitivity is really hard to handle with self-view. It gets weird. It gets neurotic. So the whole point of developing this moral sensitivity is that it doesn't work well with self-view. There's so much dissonance with self-view as we cultivate this moral sensitivity, which is exactly why it's so useful. It's useful just on this level of taking responsibility and becoming a better human being. And this is the great, amazing thing about the Buddhist teachings. It really supports the deepening of insight into the empty nature, into the impersonal nature of the mind or of all things. Because that's when the you would think, well, well, then karma is not important when the mind understands it's all empty. But it's really the other way. And, and this I was so appreciative of Ajahn Tanisaro for kind of clarifying this in one of his articles. It's like emptiness the, is the tool. Now, I, this is controversial, but I, it's like part of the sort of soup of the Dharma here these days, right? So to use it in a way that's skillful. But the teachings on emptiness, it's like, it's how our mind can really invest in karma, that this moment matters, how we show up matters, right? Because from this ordinary perspective, we want to play with the cards we're dealt, right? We're we're embodied, we have a body and a mind, we have sexuality, we have desire, we need to eat, we need to poop, we need to belong and contribute, you know, all these different sort of ordinary needs that we have as human beings. And we feel pain and we don't want to, we don't understand what death is and, you know, and then beings are born and beings die and you know, we've got this uh, limitation that we have to sort of navigate, like who gets the big house, who gets more food, less food. So it's messy, in other words. And um, we, we kind of wake up, we start to pay attention when we're not completely overwhelmed by poverty or sort of more primal issues of survival. Then we notice how stressful it is to be an embodied being, trying to survive, trying to belong, trying to contribute, right? Notice that? Not easy being a human being, right? And so we, we pay attention, and it just gets worse. It gets, the, someone told me this recently, this great line, the unbearable complexity, the unbearable burden, I think it was, of complexity. This is sensitivity to karma, to that intention matters. It's this unbearable sensitivity to the burden of complexity. And the Buddha said, like, if you try to figure karma out, like, okay, I'm going to put my intelligence to being skillful. It's not like you can do that from this sort of straightforward intellectual way. Because it's too complex. Like, I mean, this, 
amazing political moment we find ourselves in in the United States around, a lot of it is around abortion, you know, just this, and how people think about abortion, like wanting, not wanting to really relax with the unbearable complexity of this issue. It's complex. And if we pretend otherwise, and this is just one of many unbearably complex things that we as a people are dealing with. So this, the teaching on emptiness, the deeper insight is actually, as Ajahn Tanisaro talks about it, is actually a way to be wholeheartedly interested and intimate and engaged on the, with karma, with being skillful. Right? Because it's precisely taking self-fear, the neurotic part of self, out of the equation that allows us to get really interested so we can be as skillful as we can and not be burdened by stepping on an ant because we didn't have good light. And then we find out later. Or like the example I mentioned earlier about the woman that I spoke with last Sunday who was asking for help. And uh, so what what is the appropriate thing for my heart to do with that regret? Right? To be concerned, like to be prepared when somebody comes asking for help that I can't deliver, what can be done that's different than maybe what I did before? How could the response have been more skillful? Right? Because what's done is done. So the question is, what do you do with the energy of having been less than perfect? What do you do with that energy? Right? You, you devote it. And this is the thing. It's not about getting out of this unbearable complexity. It's about finding some freedom in this unbearable complexity, really giving ourselves to it. And that's why that quote from Padmasambhava is so useful. Right? It's precisely because of the vast view that we can get really attentive to karma as you know, every thought, every word spoken, every action. And really sensing how impactful we are with our friends, our cats, our circles that we inhabit. And not brushing it off or saying, I'm you know, I'm just too tired to care or, you know, whatever, because we do care. I mean, that's the thing of this embodied state is we have this incredibly sensitive heart. Mostly we spend a lot of the day desensitizing it. But as we take on these practices from the Buddha, we're, we're purposefully becoming more and more sensitive and it's getting harder and harder to bear. I often joke, you, I'm sure most of you have heard me make this joke that we should have a big neon sign on the outside of the building. Beware who ye who enters this building. You will become sensitive and you will find that hard to bear being a sensitive human being. All the unfinished business from our own past will be felt and seen because it's one mind passing the legacy on to the next mind moment. Right? It's all right here. Where else would that 
unfinished business be stored, if not somehow in the present moment? Does it mean we're aware of it because we're good at distraction? We're good at insensitivity, right? But it's still here. You know, we talk about the trauma of racism, like in our country here, or the the trauma, the unfinished business of patriarchy and misogyny and class and, you know, all these things that are... Where is that stuff? It's not like it's hidden somewhere, right? This is why when we sit, you know, and we're not, and we're just sort of in the moment, we just feel the remnants of all this unfinished business. This is the other thing. It's like, I mean, there are times in meditation practice, there's a lot of lightness and a lot of beauty and joy and stillness and peace. And there are times when there's just a lot of unpleasantness energetically being felt in the body and the mind. And trying to get away from that, like into my samadhi, just makes it worse. You know, getting into that quiet space. And learning how... The nice thing about all of that residual pain, that pain body, the body of fear, this is what different teachers have called it, is it? it's a, actually a really good barometer. It's sort of like that's the hiri otapa, right? That sort of wholesome regret, wholesome concern. It's that bodily, that subtle body. Because that's that what I mentioned earlier in the talk, that monument of all the mistakes. But now instead of suppressing, we're letting it come on the surface. I often say we're the walking wounded, right? Like all that unfinished, all that unskillfulness from the past, that legacy is here in the energy body, let's say, for lack of a better word. Don't take that too literally. And so then when we're about to do the same, you know, at another layer, we feel it in the energy body, right? It's like, oh, not more. You sure? Is this what you want to do? Oh, no, you're right. I don't want to do that. What's the other way? Is there another way? Well, I can, if nothing else, I can just refrain. Even if I don't have clarity, I can slow down at least, right? I can slow down until there is some clarity about what might be helpful in this moment for myself and for others. A lot of times we feel like, oh, I've got to decide, like, take care of myself or take care of the world. But that may be a misunderstanding that there's actually a difference, like my well-being and the well-being of others. In the article I'll send you, entitled The Guardians of the World by Bhikkhu Bodhi, this famous Western monk. Uh, he's pretty old now. He's now in New Jersey, but he spent decades in... Uh, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist monk. He's still a Buddhist monk, of course, and translated a lot of the, most of the texts now that people use to read the Buddhist teachings in English were translated by Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk, and Bodhi is his monastic name. And so in, he talks, he opens that um, article up by talking about you know, this dynamic between this very natural part of the mind that is just concerned for my own well-being and um, and just like not wanting to suffer. And then this other 
part of, so there's, that's one half, let's say, of our sensitivity. And then the other half of the sensitivity, which is generally less developed, is how I'm impacting everybody else and being impacted by everybody else. That means like even that first sensitivity, it, it's like, it's hard enough to take care of myself, but everybody else, what everybody else is doing and the world that everyone else is co-creating, that's impactful. So even if I'm doing something skillful, it doesn't mean something else isn't going to happen. That's impactful. And it's really the blending of those two things, of understanding the complexity that's coming at us and our own concern, that we can't separate ourselves from being impacted by and impacting others. And then, of course, we're impacted by how we're impacting others because we're sensitive. I mean, probably that's one of the most painful things some of us have experienced is when we've really hurt somebody. And then it really hurts that we've hurt somebody. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, you know, and we can't take it back. I mean, not easily, at least. So I'll end with a few light things and then open it up for discussion. One is uh, some of you, hopefully most of you know Kelvin and Hobbes, and if you don't, you should look it up. It's a great cartoon series that ran for a number of years, and then sort of at his peak, the artist who did it just stopped doing it. I don't know if he ever picked up some other expression of his kind of artistic talents. But it was a little boy who sort of is our, do we say id in Freudian terms? Sort of all of our not-so-skillful tendencies, greed, anger, delusion in Buddhist terms, right? Calvin. And then Hobbes is his stuffed tiger, but is not a stuffed tiger to him. It's his best friend. And he has kind of some cool uh, wisdom, Calvin, or Hobbes does, his stuffed tiger. And whenever another person is around, then he becomes a stuffed tiger, but when he's alone with Hobbes. So they're sledding down a hill in the wintertime, and uh, Calvin is talking to Hobbes, his stuffed tiger, who's behind him on the sled, roaring down the hill. I've been good all day so far, Calvin says. And then Hobbes goes, Christmas is getting near, huh? (laughs) You got it, says Calvin. I've been wondering, though, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. Is that good enough, or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? In other words, do I really have to be good, or do I just have to act good? And then they hit a tree, and they're flying (laughs) through the air. And now they're kind of picking themselves up, covered with snow. And Hobbes, the tiger, says to him, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he can get. And then Kelvin, who's that kind of part of our mind, okay, so exactly how good do you think I have to act? Really good or just pretty good? (laughs) And it's really about like the underlying intention. That's why it's so unbearably complex. Because if it, all we had to do was act good, you know, imitate being a good person, imitate being a kind person, but we actually, like from that 
place of amazing sensitivity, the brokenheartedness, the tenderheartedness, we actually, like the motivation is we care. We don't want to harm. We want to take care. Even though there's no way to alleviate all suffering, that is our motivation to alleviate suffering. Even though we'll never get there. I mean, in embodied existence, can you imagine a world without suffering? Without pain and suffering? Without gain and loss or pleasure and pain? No. But that's the motivation, right? So, um, yeah. Maybe I'll leave it there. Just it's such a rich topic. I'll save more time. And then we'll have small groups next week on this subject. And I'll send an email tomorrow with some reflections and some readings. Um, I don't know if Nora is here today, but it brings to mind, and I'm sure you've noticed, and I've you know, mentioned patriarchy while it's alive and well in the Buddhist tradition, and you'll notice so far that I think all of the resources that I've sent, sent out, the talks, have been written by men. And it's, just, it's a tradition, the scholarly at least tradition, is dominated by men. Now, in terms of Dharma teachers in this particular tradition, it's not so much dominated by men. Um, so that's good. You know, there's there's been some change over the last couple decades, but but certainly on the more scholarly end of Theravada Buddhism, insight meditation here in the West. So if you come across, and I'll give you some recorded Dharma talks on karma by some women tomorrow in the email. But if you come across some things, help me and future people taking this class, uh, send them my way. And if they seem close enough to what we're studying, then I'll send them out to the whole group. But we have about 13 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you, your responses to what I've said thus far tonight, questions that you might have about these teachings on Hiri Otapa, wholesome regret, wholesome concerns. Yeah, John, start us off. Thank you. So it's an example of the uh, wholesome concern, I guess, that happened to me today. So I was buying a guitar over a, it's over a website called Reverb. It's like eBay, but it's for music. And I was negotiating with the individual through Reverb, and it wasn't efficient, so I finally decided I'd call him you know, to be much better. And he said, oh, I'm so glad that you called because now we can cut reverb out of the deal and say, I can save you $200. And my first response was, oh, okay. And, but then he said he had to call. It was a consignment. He had to call and do other things. And, and after I hung up, I just, my whole body tensed up. And I thought of, um, you know, never take what isn't offered. And reverb isn't offering a free service. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I thought, well, when I call him again, I'm going to have to tell him I can't do this. And he was surprisingly, well, to me, he was surprisingly respectful and said, yeah, I get that. So um, how about we split the difference? I'll eat 100, you eat 100. And I went, who are you? <laughs> and he was just a guy who loved music and thought that I'd be a good, that I'd take care of it well and love it and so on. So it was just an example of of that tightening and how I just couldn't go through with it. 
and it turned out so wonderfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a perfect example of just how conscience, that force, moral force, operates in ordinary ways. Yeah, thanks, John. Other comments, questions that come to mind from the topic? Yeah, Kim. Um, you had brought up a little bit about this might touch on development, and um, I'm curious because... A little de- louder. Development's only been around for like 100 years, and teachings on emptiness have de- been around. What do you mean development? You said that this teaching might kind of touch on development as far as like morals. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was when, like I, I was saying in seventh grade, it's sort of when that brain, when our brains, you know, can be empathetic and sort of understand cause and effect in a, in a that sort of social arena. I forget studied Piaget a long time ago, but there are some sort of ideas about when that moral conscience is actually, like the brain has developed. Okay. Yeah, okay. so that's what I was talking okay. about. Okay, thank you. Um, so this um, moral line of development, uh, I get that like rationally, like I'm not going to buy plastic bags because that's going to contribute to a lot of waste. And... Um, I guess I'm really curious, is it moral as being like an action and being sensitive? Um, sensitive to the impression that the thought, the word, or action leaves in the heart. So it's an actual impression. So it's real. It's not abstract. And that's why sensitivity is so important because we'll feel the impact of a word spoken. And it's the impact, not the word spoken, that is relevant. What's the impact? What seed has been planted by that thought, that those words, that deed that I did? Okay. So I'm lacking in, I think, the experience of emptiness because I'm thinking, is emptiness in itself a moral action? Or is it... I don't sure. The the deepening of wisdom, understanding that's more and more and more in alignment with the way it is, that's what wisdom means, and understanding a way of framing our experience that is more and more and more in alignment with the underlying nature the way it is. Right. So if, na- if the underlying nature is that this is a natural process that doesn't refer back to anything, just as a possibility, right? So that point of view is also a karmic act. There are consequences to relating to our experience with a self-view, just like there are consequences, different consequences or different results relating to experience as nature, not self-view. Is that, is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, because, um, yeah, there's this um, kind of state experience that, kind of drops the the development that's trying to like push the morals up and yet emptiness is a moral action or I, I don't know there's something that I'm just teasing or not teasing but discerning that it just it feels like um like when my state doubt, of mind is being captured yeah so this is where what I was saying from Ajahn Tanisar and the Dalai Lama says the same thing like 
this is a bad paraphrase of the Dalai Lama, but basically it's something like, when in doubt between orienting around the teachings of emptiness and orienting around the teachings of karma, orient around the teachings of karma, right? It's just generally a good idea because those teachings will create the right perspective on how to use the teachings on emptiness. And that's the same point, Ajantani Saro, that I was trying to share tonight. It's like karma is the foundational perspective. This matters. It's, this is a con- whatever this is, it's conditional, it's lawful. It matters how we're showing up. And then the emptiness, the understanding of emptiness, the understanding that it's nature, like you were, I thought I heard you saying, Cam, is a karmic act, a very skillful, ultimately most skillful karmic act is to have that view because it really frees up the heart to participate in karma in a lawful, conditional unfolding in a way that contributes to the well-being of one and all and with, in this sort of unbearable complexity of karma, of cause and effect. Right? It allows someone to participate in the best possible of ways. Yeah, yeah we'll go over here. Hi, I'm Ruth. Um, so this is, of course, very useful. Thank you. And uh, one of the discussions that I think I and everybody <laughs> have been having on Facebook uh, this week is about whether uh, Judge Kavana, if he is, or Kavanaugh, if he is, in fact, um, did do what uh, it is said he did, uh, by what mechanism will he be made to feel guilty or shame for that? And so I've been having some very interesting discussions with my friends about um, how... uh, how karma works in this social situation, right? Because, in fact, if someone does drink to blackout, which does happen, and they don't remember really anything, um, it's possible that what he's saying is true. But what I'm more interested in is the social mechanism around which he is being made to atone uh, for for this act, if, if, in fact, it happened. Um, and some of the discussion has been that um, truly about the nature of human beings, right? And the, and the possibility for our collective enlightenment. Like, do people like this, predators or, say, alpha males, um, do they actually feel, um, is, it, is it possible that they will be made to feel shame or guilt? Or is it enough that there's something in the society that can can be a social mechanism for karma that could in fact move us in a in a safer direction as a as a species and as a planet. I mean, I know that's a huge question, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> no, no, no. But but it, yeah. I mean, it, it's really because it's troubling. It's it's very very troubling if 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 predators never uh, care. But it's also possibly um, it possibly something else is happening in the social fabric of the 
collective that could be moved in this direction towards... Because both are... Because the impact is happening everywhere. There's an impact in Judge Kavanaugh's heart, whatever that is. We don't know, but we can certainly presume and in moments sense different kinds of impacts that might be happening there. And there's impacts happening to all of us. And all of that makes the collective, you know, all of these individual impacts sort of makes up sort of the societal impact of what's happening. And the, the thing is to be insensitive, to be unaware of the impact of our actions, that is also, that also leaves an impression, that's also an impact on our heart. So we can answer part of your question directly, like in those places in our life where we've been practicing being unaware because it's painful to be aware, or we've been practicing being dishonest because it's painful to be honest, what is when we do wake up, we won't know, like you said, when we're when our pattern, our defensive pattern is working well, we may be unaware of the suffering that is involved in that pattern, but that doesn't mean there's not suffering. But at some point we'll become aware, like when we pick up a meditation practice and are sincere and the whole system of the body-mind is quieting down, and then in that quietness, all the unfinished business in moments, at least, express itself. And, you know, you see this, people breaking down, like on, like uh, teaching retreats or being on retreat, especially longer retreats, and all of a sudden, somebody is just opening to some layer layer of deep regret that they were just unaware of. For right, but that's us. I don't see people like Kavana or Lindsey Graham or you know, Stalin or Hitler in retreats very often. Right. But, but see, again, not to believe in it, but uh, this is why it might be useful to keep our hearts, minds open to the possibility that although the body dies, whatever is unfinished or whatever is in motion in this mind legacy, one mind leading to the next, that that remains unfinished. How that all works, I don't know. And I'm not asking anybody to believe in it. But I, I do find in my own life, it's skillful to have an open mind about that. For part of the reason, that the important points that you're bringing up, because it's useful, it's skillful to imagine we don't get away with nothing. right? It's really helpful to imagine that. Because it makes us a different kind of person as opposed to, you know, if I just play my cards right, I'll get away with this. I'll get away with being an insensitive jerk. Logical, go for it. Because the the other thing of kind of owning it and feeling into it and making amends and noticing what that feels like, I don't think I want to go there. You know, and we see this. This is, but you know, we can kind of, the other point that I was making I think is also true. So one is that whatever that's in motion, it will have to play itself out one way or another. Now, will that be Judge Kavanaugh? No, because it isn't Judge Kavanaugh now. It's just causes and conditions. You know, it's just, 
But there is sensitivity, but there isn't any body, right? But do you know what I mean? So it's always a confusing thing in Buddhism anyway. And I think it's useful for us to have this sense that we're all responsible. Like, it, let's say, because if it isn't Judge Kavanaugh, it's somebody who's in denial about the kind of unskillful actions they've been involved in, right? And are going down the route, whether they're conscious of it or not, going down the route of denial and then digging in more and then digging in more, you know. So that's not an unusual pattern where people sort of double down in the denial or not me or never did it. And we are all suffering about this. We're just a little bit a little bit more aware of all the suffering around you called it alpha male, but just the how power has worked and how power has been abusive for so long, you know, these patterns in our wider culture. And now we're all little so we know we don't need to know like what's going on in Judge Kavanaugh's heart, because we know what's going on. I know what's going on in my heart. And for those of you who aren't listening to the news, you know, again, I'm not saying that's an unskillful approach, but I think it's even more skillful to be sensitive and somehow learn to be to use the sensitivity of and the exposure without becoming the person burdened by it. That's what we have to do. It's sort of use the what's getting evoked, what's getting triggered, what's you know, what reactions are coming up for us, what reactions we're sensing in those around us. And to keep ventilating it with wisdom, like, can I be with this? Can I see this clearly? Can I be unafraid? And because that sensitivity changes who we are. But to have to hide from it, now I think it's important to modulate how much the exposure at any one moment, because clearly we can get addicted that's not helpful. We're just sort of feeding on self-righteousness or hate or whatever. You know, and that's, that's just more of the same, really. Yeah, so sorry I don't have a, a better answer to that. But I think both sensing that right now, whatever's going on, we're being impacted by it. We're resp- we, we have every incentive to be responsible for what we're feeling being in the middle of it to whatever degree we're allowing ourselves to be sensitive to it. And to keep open that, in terms of that individual mind legacy, that making it to the end of his life without getting caught or whatever that might be for a particular person, um, that somehow I'm staying open to the possibility that that legacy will find a way to express itself in another time and place, or whatever, who knows? I don't. I don't know. But I find it useful to stay open to that possibility because it makes me more vigilant and and less negligent. But we have to leave it here. But we'll pick it up next week. Look for the email tomorrow. Thanks for your comments, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.